Good morning and welcome to Stories in Public Health. I'm your host, Emily Dieter, and this is a podcast for people who are interested in public health. And today I'm being joined by the wonderful Associate Professor Lisa Wop. She works at the Research School of Population Health at ANU and her research focuses on cervical cancer control for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women. Thank you for joining us, Lisa. Thanks, Emily. Nice to be here. So Lisa and I have known each other for a little while. She was in the Marshall Applied Epi class uh, the year after me? Yes. Yeah, I was going to say the year below, but yeah, the year after. Yeah, the year below. <laughs> and so maybe you could just start by telling us, giving us a bit of an intro into your career journey to date. It's a big question. Take your time. That was just, yeah, well, how long have we got? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think before I do that, because it kind of all ties in, I suppose, with my career journey is to tell you a little bit about who I am. And so my family is from Mubiag Island in the western part of the Torres Strait and... I suppose I grew up in Townsville in a suburb called Kelso, which is a very low socioeconomics group. I really, you know, looking back now, learned a lot about community. I learned a lot about race and racism. And I think it really set me up to understand a lot about how research and institutions operate. So I'm the youngest of three girls. uh, So obviously I'm the favourite. And all of us do completely different things, which I think is kind of interesting. But all of us really have worked in sort of social justice. And I think that's probably a credit to my parents, who are both social workers. And so my mum's not Indigenous and she grew up on the Darling Downs and came from a large Catholic family. And my dad obviously grew up in Mubiag Island in the western part of Torres Strait. And so coming from really two different worlds and and having us girls is probably all of an experience of its own. But I really learned how the world treats people differently based on the colour of your skin. And so I guess when I was at school, I thought I was pretty good at maths and pretty good at science, um, but I've always loved to read. I love reading, actually. It's probably one of my favourite activities. And I couldn't kind of work out how, how maybe all of those would go together. So I thought I'd probably just do medicine because, I don't know, I kind of liked the idea of health, but I'm not very good at one-on-one stuff. So I figured um, I'd just do science and then kind of work it out from there. Still kind of really understanding how I could incorporate reading into my work because I think that it was important to me to kind of have have that in there somewhere and so um, really where I've ended up as an academic is a perfect role because I'm paid to read (laughs) Uh, and I read widely and I um, I really mark out that time as well actually so yeah I guess I ended up doing science thinking I'd still do medicine somewhere down the track and then quickly realized I wasn't going to do that because I just thought I'm going to study forever and a boring and two I didn't really want to deal with patients at the end of it but what I ended up doing was actually just doing more study which is kind of ironic Uh, so I then did the Master of Applied Epidemiology and I suppose the pathway from being an undergrad to doing the MAE was I guess a big one and a kind of a big bit of a divergence from what I had thought because I really didn't know what I wanted to do except that I wanted to do something in health Um, preferably something with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people given uh, the poor health outcomes uh, that mob experience and so I was got a cadetship while I was an undergrad student and so the cadetship allowed me to study but also I had to do certain work experience and so I was at the Queensland Institute of Medical Research now known as QMR Berghofer 
And I had this great time where I used to go around to different laboratories and see what they were doing. So sometimes it was with scabies and sometimes it was group A strep. Other times it was, you know, snake venom, all really random things. But I got to see what research was like and how these big questions were being asked and how people would really methodically go through and try and answer this big puzzle. And that really appealed to me. And of course, they read widely. And I thought this, maybe this sounds like a good option for me. Um, It was there that I met Professor Gail Garvey. She just moved up from Newcastle and was um, heading up the Aboriginal health program at QIMR. And we met and basically hit off what's been a very long standing mentor mentee relationship. And she basically, I think over lunch one day said, I think what you want to do is epi. You're good at numbers. You like research. You should do it. And Vanessa Clements was actually in at QIMR at the time. So she's a former MAE as well. Former? I actually don't know what the word is there. Alumna? Um, alumna? Okay. Yeah, she's an MAE alumna. <laughs> she was finishing her MAE at the time and she was like, you know, sis, you should do it. It's so good. You'll learn lots. And so I applied and the rest is history. So I did the MAE, loved it, obviously, and um, then went on to do my PhD in EPI and now have my own research program. Uh, I have a few questions leading on for that. That was a very good description. <laughs> But the first one is you mentioned growing up that it really helped you to understand how organizations and institutions work. How did you learn that growing up? Yeah, I think um, you know, I'm really proud about proud where I grew up. Um I I think, you know, I went to school in a place that really was very diverse. And I think I could just see, you could just really plainly see how, you know, at Kelso, how the shops would, what the shop's prices would be and how it would look and how customers get treated versus if you would go closer into town and and how um, people would be treated there or how things looked particularly. So, I mean, that's a very superficial way of looking at it. It's, it's very hard to describe. But I think what I knew in Kelso was that community matters connection really matters and as you know as a black woman that's really important to me knowing who I am where I'm from who my ancestors are but also being really hyper aware of that the world will treat me inherently different whether I achieve as much as I possibly can or not all of that end of the day can be erased very quickly based purely on either appearance or um, perception so I think Kelso taught me about what community spirit takes to be really strong and that people were proud that they came from Kelso. And I've seen it in lots of other communities. You hear it a lot about Redfern. You hear it a lot about Inala. And I, I notice I really gravitate towards those communities as well. So I think they become a place or they did become a place, particularly for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, where they could feel a sense of strength together versus perhaps being in a a suburb or a community that where they were maybe one and only Aboriginal person or one and only the Torres Strait Islander person. That's a great answer. Yeah, I think it's really important for um, non-Indigenous people to, to hear about these things because I think a lot of people, it's something they don't necessarily think about very much or something they, you know, they've never had to experience. Yeah, definitely. My other question is a bit different and I forget what it was. Oh, so I do remember what it was now. You didn't really touch on this. You just sort of said you're in academia. But so you left the Master of Applied Epi and you really have chosen academia and stayed in academia. Did you just know, like, because I feel like I left MAE and I've bounced around all over the place <laughs> trying to figure out who I am and what I want to do. How did you know? Like, were you just set on academia or did it just happen that way? Uh, it's a good question. And I'd like to think that it was a really well thought out plan. But I think, you know, you can... 
even listening back to lots of the interviews that you've done for this podcast, I, I feel like my career has been a series of pretty good mistakes and just trying things out. And, you know, I still think, am I going to be in research forever? It's a pretty tough gig. But I knew when I finished the MAE that I wanted to work on big projects versus doing smaller, more acute stuff. So I wanted to kind of, yeah, work on big problems. That sort of that whole idea of working on a puzzle really appeals to me versus sort of, you know, in the MAE, you have to do an outbreak investigation. And all of that is so important. Don't get me wrong, but it's also not where I think my skills lie. I think my skills lie in actually thinking differently and outside the box of longstanding issues. And so that's what appeals me, appeals to me in terms of research and academia and in terms of having that time to actually innovate and think. Not that that's not required for, you know, fast pace outbreak response but I think in terms of my personality I'm I'm much more drawn to that side and I think the other advice I got was I was from Kamalini um, who was my supervisor during the MAE and she's, she's a medical epidemiologist incredible woman and she gave me the advice about you really have to know your stuff that you actually have to know your methods so well to be able to have a seat at the table and to occupy that space. And I think for me, I thought, well, I'm pretty used to being poor already as a student. So instead of getting a job, I'll just do my PhD because I'll just get the poor part over. Um, <laughs> That's smart. Like I'm used to being poor. I grew up poor. So I think I was like, I'll just get all this done at the front end of my life and then I'll see about getting a proper job later on. And maybe you could tell us now about so some of the work you did in your PhD and then you're working at Menzies Centre for Health Research. So maybe talk us through some of the research you were doing there. Sure. So I guess off the back of that, I decided to, um, and I spoke with Kamalini a lot about choosing supervisors based on, so I knew I wanted to do a PhD. I wanted to get my methods right. And she suggested choosing a PhD based on supervisor versus topic, which I thought is a really interesting concept. And my choice at the time was, and, you know, is, is still his always is, was Professor John Condon, who works at the Menzies School of Health Research, where I was based at the time. Um, an incredible epidemiologist, a great thinker, a really kind person. And he also scared me a little bit. And I think that helps because you need to be able to be accountable to someone. And so we talked about a few ideas, actually, um, before I started, and we settled on this big project that had been, again, a long-standing issue. And so my PhD was understanding the performance of the National Cervical Screening Program for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women. And so the National Cervical Screening Program had been running or has been running since 1991. And they were, and this was sort of back in 2015, 14, when did I start? Oh my gosh, I actually started in 2012. That was at the end, sorry. And they had never reported on outcomes for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women in terms of participating in cervical screening. So we knew that cervical cancer outcomes were much worse for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women. Two times higher incidence, four times higher mortality, lower survival, and yet we have this public health program. And so it was this real mismatch and going, well, the program's obviously not meeting the needs, but they weren't measuring how many women were actually participating. And so we decided that we were going to find that out. Um, We knew anecdotal reports, small localised study, but nothing more than that. And so John and I and a whole team of investigators set out on doing a large 
um, data linkage project where we linked PAP test registry data from each state and territory to hospital admissions data and to cancer registry data. So we could see women who developed cervical cancer who hadn't been screening and obviously we could see those who had been screening um, and developed cervical cancer. So we applied the Indigenous status variable from hospital admissions data to the PAP test register. And obviously a whole bunch of validation stuff around whether that was a good way of doing things. So using existing administrative data to solve what I would say is, you know, a responsibility of the program to, to have delivered, which they hadn't consistently for nearly 25 plus years. So from that study, uh, my PhD was for Queensland. And so we found that it was about 1.7 million women in our study. And we found that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women, only about 30% of eligible women um, were participating regularly um, in cervical screening, but about two thirds of Indigenous women were not participating in cervical screening. So a large proportion. And this is really alarming because most women in Australia who um, are diagnosed with cervical cancer have either never had a pap test in their life or a cervical screen in their life, or they haven't in the previous 10 years. So you could immediately see that the program wasn't reaching these women. And you could, we could find out some other things. So abnormalities were much higher. Um, time to follow up was much slower. So all these really important program delivery variables that should be reported as part of the program were not being reported for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women. And this really stemmed from longstanding issues around pathology request forms, which don't include Indigenous status, which doesn't just affect the cervical screening program, but actually has large implications for other, you know, communicable diseases particularly, and has, you know, recently as COVID as well, in terms of being able to, to have good testing data, um, which they have been able to overcome, which is good. And so... Is the work you do now leading on from that, like looking at ways to actually increase those rates? Yeah, definitely. So the work that I do now is purely around trying to ensure that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women are part of the elimination of cervical cancer. So 2018, the World Health Organization announced that they could see in our generate uh, in our lifetime that cervical cancer that cervical cancer could be eliminated as a public health program a problem. That doesn't mean that there'll be no cases of cervical cancer, but it means it would be below a certain threshold. So they've settled on four per 100,000. Currently, Australia will be one of the first countries to eliminate cervical cancer, but that won't include Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women. And so I suppose the way that I see my work leading on from my PhD is in three pillars. So we have obviously increasing as much as possible cervical screening participation for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women and come back to how we're doing some of that. A work around HPV vaccination, which obviously vaccinates against the virus that causes cervical cancer. Um, and that's mostly with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander adolescents, so maximum vaccination. Um, and then there's, a, I guess, another underlying component that I am yet to do a bit of work in, which is around making sure that those women diagnosed with cervical cancer are diagnosed as early as possible and have the maximum treatment options available to them. And then I guess the third real pillar of my work is around advocacy. I suppose some people think it's a bit odd as a researcher to do so much advocacy, but I really see that as a core role of researchers. And so I spent a lot of time reminding governments, um, state and commonwealth, as well as different organisations, and not just reminding, like banding with other groups to say, actually not all women in Australia have benefited the same as other Australian women. And so we can't leave these women behind. So my real 
wish or demand, I suppose, is about saying as a country, we won't declare that we have eliminated cervical cancer unless we've eliminated it for all women. Because what you'll see is something like RHD, where RHD pretty much doesn't exist in Australia, except for extraordinary rates in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander youth, um, particularly. So I think we're better than that. I think we've learned um, how this plays out if we don't have increased focus for everyone. And I just think it's unacceptable if we declare that we have eliminated cervical cancer when there's whole groups of the population who will not have had it eliminated. Yes, I agree. And can I ask you a question? You don't have to answer this if you don't want to. But do you ever find this really frustrating? Like even when you first said that when you were talking then that that we're going to say that we've eliminated it, but we haven't eliminated it for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women. Common sense tells me that we haven't eliminated it. Is that frustrating? You have to tell people that? Yeah, yeah, it's super frustrating. Yeah, it's, it's, it's frustrating. It feels incredibly wasteful of my time in in many others I don't want to I definitely don't want to seem like I'm the only one this is you know I I form a long line of other Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women that have raised this issue continue to raise this issue but also you know colleagues who also feel very strongly about this I think I wish I had the clear answer of the why but I think we kind of deep down know why and I think and people feel often feel very uncomfortable when I say this, but I it just demonstrates that Australia as a community, as a country, we don't value the lives of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women in the same way that we value other Australian women. Mm-hmm. And I think um, if we've had a public health program that's delivered fantastic outcomes, there's no denying that, it's remarkable, but it hasn't achieved it in the same way for a whole population, then that actually says something. But I think that our you know as Australians we want to be the first and we want to be the winners and there's that real culture about us and and we also are pretty good at denying our history and so I think that even if people aren't consciously thinking of it in that way that's the sort of deep rooted causes of where that comes from of of that sort of denial of how this country has come to be and the ongoing ways in which we deny Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and this wish that you know, we, we want to be world leaders and we want to be seen to be leading the world. And it's it's interesting to me because I think that we do in so many ways, especially in cervical cancer prevention, that I think countries would look favourably upon us if we said, well, we won't declare elimination or, you know, we are leading this because we focus on ensuring that public health programs don't produce and then reproduce and then have them persist these inequities. This isn't just here in Australia, though, I should should be clear. We see same issues happening in New Zealand in terms of their inequities for Maori women um, who have higher rates of cervical cancer. And we see it in the US with First Nations women there and we see it in Canada as well. So really high-income country, high-income colonised countries, we see very similar outcomes in terms of cervical cancer, but also in terms of health more broadly. Well, I think you're doing very important work. And if I can ever help, like, get the message out there with the podcast or by myself, please let me know. I will. Thanks, Emily. <laughs> and leading on from advocacy, it's still in the same space. I wanted to talk to you about Twitter because uh, you're very active on Twitter. And a lot of people I talk to, like a lot of really senior people, I'm like, what What should people do when they're junior? And everyone's like, get on Twitter. And I still find it really confusing. <laughs> it fuddled. It befuddles me. So maybe talk us through how you got involved with Twitter and how you use it. 
That is funny. I would say I'm not a big user of Twitter. Um, I probably look more than I tweet, but I think it's an incredible tool. Don't get me wrong, there's the dark side of it. But I originally started using it because I was following um, basketball in the States. So I was just, they just did updates really well and you could get more immediate response. So it was kind of, that was why. And then I think I went to a conference and they were using Twitter and I don't know how it really started. And now, of course, I think it's the greatest social media platform of all time. You get to have really concise messaging, which I think is important for scientists <laughs> to be able to communicate. You know, you can do threads, so you can put, you can put an opinion or, a, you know, summarise a paper that you've published really quickly to a whole bunch of people really quickly and get information out there. You can use it to ask questions. Earlier this year, I put out a tweet that asked how people sign off on their emails, and it's so I don't even know why I care, but I do because I often don't sign off oh, anything. I still don't know. What you're and you just, it's so awkward. I feel weird. <laughs> and I was changing jobs, moving from Menzies to ANU, and I thought, oh, maybe I'll think about this. And anyway, it blew up. The, the tweet blew up. It just was retweeted crazy amount of times, had immense engagement on it. So engagement with people all around the world talking about how they um, sign off in an email. So that's a a less important tweet, but the same thing can happen for work or ideas or collaboration. So I've seen lots of people collaborate on, you know, coming from kind of Twitter accounts and then going on to collaborate. Um, many papers have been born, particularly sort of editorials or opinion pieces around what I see on Twitter and the kind of rhetoric around particular topics. And what I love most about Twitter is what we call Blackfella Twitter, where lots of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are on Twitter and they're just the engagement, the banter, the way that we can talk about issues, this real fun place to be that's super intellectual but safe. And I think that it's, yeah, it's just, a, it's just really fun. I love it. That's awesome. I have two, two final questions. So I was just wondering, what are your big sort of life or career lessons? What would you to tell younger researchers or people starting out in public health? I think to tell them that it's it's really rewarding work. It's rewarding because it's meaningful. And if you can't remember what you're working on and the why, then you really need to reconsider what you're doing. And I say that because particularly in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health research, people have made careers off the back of the disadvantage of Indigenous peoples and so if you can't really understand what it is that you're working on and see what an outcome could be, then I think you really have to question what you're doing. So I think for younger researchers, it's to be really mindful that there can be places that do research for research sake, and we don't need that anymore. I think if you're working in public health, you should always be thinking about equity, whether you are producing it, um, whether you're reproducing it, whether you're ignoring it or whether you're tackling it full on. And I think that as public health researchers, addressing inequities in our society is probably one of our biggest responsibilities. And I think probably the other word of advice, at least for EPIs, is what we talked about in that recent, uh, in a recent lecture with MAE students, was your, your responsibility is not just to describe um, or understand health patterns, but your job is actually to do something about it. So often people will just do the first part, but I think 
there's too many of us that don't do the second part. And so doing both is actually what makes this discipline such a core component of public health. That's really important. Thank you. It's been a good wake up call for me. I don't think I do that well enough. So thank you. I'm going to go away and really reflect on this today. And my final question is, do you have a favourite book, which I know you were a bit worried about? Um, do you have a favourite book or movie you'd like to tell us about? <laughs> I love how you say movie or Netflix series. No. Um, <laughs> I don't underestimate Netflix. <laughs> not Emily in Paris, can it let me tell you. I have so many favourite books. My the fa- my most favourite book that I've read this year um, was Uncle Archie Roach's Tell Me Why. It's a must read, I think, for anyone. It's, how do I describe it? It's, um, I felt like it was an incredible gift to read it. Uh, he is so open and honest uh, and warm. Even, you know, I experienced that when I listened to his music, but I didn't expect to, to experience that same feeling when I read his book. But I certainly did. And I think there's, I think a lot of Australians could learn about a lot from that book. And in terms of work, <laughs> favorite books, I think, you know, recently I've revisited Aileen Morton Robinson, distinguished professor Aileen Morton Robinson's book, Talking Up to the White Woman. That book helped me many years ago understand, yeah, understand the way in which the world works, particularly for black women. And yeah, it's an incredible text. It's, I think it's this year is 20 years since the first release of that book and I've revisited it many times and it's just been really helpful to learn from her through her work but also, as I said, understand the ways in which the world works and kind of theorise around it, which has helped me in the work that I do, obviously working with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women. Oh, that's awesome. I've actually just finished my last book, so I'll put both of those at the top of my list. I might call you afterwards. Yes, do that. <laughs> Is there anything I've missed or any any sort of last things you'd like to cover? I don't think so. No, excellent. You know, you've done awesomely. It's been amazing. <laughs> I feel like all I did was talk. I'm so sorry. I should have like. I'm, no, I'm interviewing you. That's the purpose. <laughs> like shorter answers, more questions. No, they were perfect. Well, thank you very much. I've loved catching up with you. Um, and, yeah. Um, and time. It was great. And thank you everyone for listening. Bye.